What happens when you combine the most innovative, eccentric and charismatic leaders, disruptors and founders from tech with the pedigree and history of one of the most established institutions within the City of London? Season four of the Searching for Mana podcast will be produced in partnership with the London Stock Exchange and will represent one of the most exciting collaborations in the tech space. Austin, welcome on to the Searching for Mana show. Thanks, Lloyd. It's great to be here. Pleasure to have you on the show. Slightly fuller introduction, we have um, Austin Allison of Picasso, um, founder and CEO uh, at Picasso. Uh, really excited to go into what you guys are up to right now. It's been a, a relatively short journey with Picasso where you've already achieved so many things that um, look exciting. So keen to cut into that, but also an incredible entrepreneurial journey for Austin. So uh, we'll have a really fun man around in the middle and then at the end of the show, we'll do some future projections. And we'll also um, talk about the markets. The business I'll leave um, you, Austin, to explain to the audience, um, you know, what the user case is and uh, why you're so passionate and excited about, about it. But broadly speaking, we will talk about property. And, you know, we are in um, September, coming into October of 2022. So, uh, albeit Searching for Mana is a evergreen content show, it'd be remiss of us not to take some of Austin's macro critique on the uh, property market right now. Um, so we'll cover some of that. So it should be very valuable uh, for, for the audience too. Austin, if you could be so kind to let the audience know um, who Picasso are and what you guys are up to right now, please. Yeah, absolutely. So Picasso, spelled P-A-C-A-S-O, uh, is a service that empowers people to co-own second homes together. So the easiest way to think about it, Lloyd, is imagine if you and four or five of your closest friends or family members wanted to buy a holiday home somewhere, you know, pick your dream destination. Um, you could self-organize and co-own a home on your own. I mean, it is possible and people have been doing that for a long time, but it tends to be very difficult to do on your own because there's a lot of details that need to be managed and schedules that need to be coordinated. So Picasso has created a service that makes it easy for people to co-own, and you don't have to know the other individuals. You can literally just go to our website, picasso.com, search for a bunch of beautiful listings, you know, and we're now in about 40 destinations around the world with, with London being one of them. Um, and you could find a beautiful property and buy as little as one eighth of the home or as much as one half of the home, depending on how often you plan to use it. So it really enables people to right-size their ownership um, as opposed to to buying a whole home that that would sit vacant you know 10 or 11 months a year on average so that's what we do at a bit at a very high level thank you so just to cut into that a little bit why would somebody choose to take a one-eighth as an example in a second home where if we work that out you know, broadly speaking, let's say it's just over a month. Um, you could go and take uh, a holiday home. You could get it on an Airbnb, which is the other way to look at it. What's the investment benefit, but also what's the feel-good factor about um, doing that through Picasso, as you say? Yeah, it's a it's a really great question. So the way that I like to answer this question is by by thinking about the menu of housing options on a, a spectrum of usage. Like imagine if we were sitting in front of a whiteboard right now, Lloyd, and I drew a line across the whiteboard and on one end of the whiteboard, you have infrequent usage or transient usage. On the other end of the whiteboard, you have frequent usage, which would be like six months per year or more. On the, on the infrequent usage side of the whiteboard, let's call it you know one time a year or less, for that use case, you, there's a lot of great options in the, the travel and, and hospitality industry, from hotels to short-term rentals. It just really doesn't make sense to buy a home if you're only going to use it once a year or less. For the other end of the spectrum, if you're going to use a home six months per year or more, we recommend that you buy the whole thing. Because at that point in time, owning the whole thing has certain advantages that outweigh the advantages of co-ownership. Where co-ownership comes into play is everything in between. If you're going to use a home more than once a year, but less than six months a year, 
that's the use case where you would want to co-own a home. And the reason why is because, you know, if, if you're not using the home more than six months a year, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to own 100% of it because the home's just going to be sitting vacant, you know, costing you money and, and creating a lot of waste that just isn't sustainable. On the other end of the spectrum, you know, if you're going to be using a home kind of more than a week a year, there's a lot of advantages of owning that you really want to consider when compared to renting. One advantage of owning is you actually own the real estate, you know, and Picasso tends to operate in, in really great real estate markets that have limited supply and lots of demand. And if you look at the, the performance of those real estate markets over a, a longer period of time, what you'll find is that they tend to be really smart places to park money. You know, had you bought real estate in London or, you know, uh, Malibu or, you know, almost any other um, location on our website 10 years ago, you'd be pretty happy right now, right? With, with the value of your investment, because these are good real estate markets um, that have very limited supply. But there's also a lot of other kind of practical and emotional benefits of owning that you don't get when you're renting somebody else's home or staying at the hotel. One practical benefit is an owner, you get to keep your stuff at the property. So if you're going to visit, you know, like if I live in California and I'm going to visit London four or five times a year, it'd be pretty nice if I could keep my stuff there, right? And with Picasso, you can do that. Every owner has their own owner's closet. So you don't have to, you know, lug your clothes back and forth every time you show up. But the, the other big piece is there's a lot of real emotional, you know, benefit and value from owning. When you own a property, you develop a a connection with that property and with that neighborhood and with the people of that neighborhood that is long-term. You know, you end up developing these rituals around, you know, restaurants that you frequent or, or things that you do that really enrich your life and, and the lives of your family. So one of the things that we tend to see in, in many of our, our destinations is a lot of families with kids will actually buy these second homes because the second home provides a really meaningful place for the families to to build memories with their children and to put smiles on their children's faces and it's really hard to put a you know dollar value on on that benefit yes that um really resonates with me uh I have a, a nearly 4 year old daughter and uh we go to um don't know if you know Cornwall in in the UK yeah so live in London yeah. and go to Cornwall um, every six months with our extended family. And so yeah. um, Lily's an only child at the moment, but that extended family brings some cousins for her. And, uh, you know, she knows the name St. Ives. And, uh, you know, I mean, literally for the whole six months building up to it, so excited to go back to St. Ives um, so that we can spend time with the family and, you know, um, get the the kind of uh, meals that she looks forward to and uh, you know she's slightly scared of the crazy aggressive seagulls that you get in Cornwall and so there's this kind of uh, you know there's this habit that you tend to find with children that they enjoy actually they like to know where they might be going back to and I love that it's, it's so nice so we won't want to change that so at the moment we don't uh, own a property there we found a particularly nice uh, accommodation that feels like it's you know good vibes for a family but we're, we're just renting that every time we go so we're kind of probably just on the cusp of that middle of you know not once a year and certainly not six months yeah. plus where you know it'd be interesting to figure out if a Picasso is a good situation for us because the accommodation we're going to it has other people staying there every other week of the year right whereas if yeah. we could have it shared with four families, several families. And we had that, like you say, you could leave some bucket and spades, uh, you know, some of the the obvious um, seaside holiday clothes. I can really see the advantage. So um, you, you've got me on this one. Get get your <laughs> get your uh, properties in, in, in Cornwall and I, I'd love it. What is then the experience of how I would acquire to be suitable to move into that model of yours? Um, well, basically, it's kind of a function of how much you use it and and sort of where your budget is, right? Like if if you're planning again, if you're planning to use a home more than a week a year, and you have the the money to put down as a deposit on the property, because we do offer financing up to seventy percent 
loan to value. So it requires a 30% down payment. But if you have those two things going for you, the money to put down and the usage, this model is going to make sense because it, it tends to be like when you're renting a home on the, the short-term rental market or a hotel, again, can be a really great solution for that kind of once a year kind of a use case, but you're going to pay a lot more, you know, on a, on a nightly basis than when you own. I mean, as, as a frame of reference, like um, I own a, 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 a per, personally, I own a couple of Picassos and I've analyzed, you know, my annual operating expenses relative to the cost to own or, or sorry, to rent a comparable home in the market. And what I've found is that, you know, my annual operating cost to own um, is about equal to what it would cost me to rent two or three weeks yeah. in, in a comparable home, you know, at any given point in time without all the ownership benefits, right? So as long as you're going to use the home, you know, a few weeks a year or more, you're going to end up saving a lot of money by owning a Picasso when compared to renting and deriving all the ownership benefits that we discussed before. So okay, that those are the things that I'd be thinking about as a customer. Love it. And then Austin, I'm thinking about it from, um, from an investor's perspective, not from a venture capital perspective, we get to that, but yeah. from, I, I want to get one of these, I want to get a Picasso as you put it. I like that. I'd like a Picasso. And uh, we'll ask, um, we'll ask why that that's the name of the business in a bit. But um, how do I look at an event? So, you know, I get my one sixth of this Cornwall property. And for whatever reason, in two or three or however many years it is, um, I decide that doesn't work for me anymore. Perhaps we've moved to America. One example. So I want to exit. Example two is I think I've made a good return on my investment. Could you explain those two scenarios for us, please? Yeah, absolutely. So when you buy a Picasso, you're buying real estate. So the way to think about it is pretty consistent with how you think about buying a whole home. Uh, with one difference, the difference is with Picasso, we make it much easier. I mean, when you buy a Picasso, you can literally find a home on our website and be an owner of that home the, in the next day. Amazing. For the traditional real estate process, that could take you know months in some in some markets, particularly um, some markets throughout Europe. I mean, it could take six months or nine months yeah. to close on a property from the time oh, you yeah. start searching. So with Picasso, it takes one day. We've made it really easy to buy and really easy to sell. So when you buy a Picasso at any given point in time, if you wish to sell or transfer to another Picasso at another location, we make it really easy. And so far, what we've experienced is that the resale transactions have moved very quickly. On average, in about 10 to 12 days is what it, what it takes on average to resell a Picasso. And they've traded up about 15% annually compared to what the owners paid previously. So we've actually seen them you know, trade in some markets actually grow in value a little bit faster than what the underlying real estate grew in value because it's so you know, easy to transact. Yeah. So that's, that's what you should know about the transaction process. But in terms of how to think about investing in real estate, we don't, you know, we don't recommend Picasso as an investment. The Picasso, you should, you should be buying a Picasso if you wish to, um, you know, use it for your own personal use and enjoyment. It's, it's not something that I'd recommend. It's like a pure investment. But what I will say is that real estate has historically proven to be a pretty smart place to park money, particularly during recessionary and challenging times. I mean, if you look back at almost all the prior recessions over the course of the last few decades, with the exception of what happened in 2008 um, here in the US, uh, which was really a real estate centric recession, but all the other ones, you know, real estate proved to be one of the most stable and safest places to park money. So I think we are seeing a lot of people really look at Picasso as a, as a smart way to own real estate and also an accessible way to gain access to markets that previously were pretty out of reach. Like yes. not just anyone can afford a eight or $10 million penthouse in Mayfair. You yeah. know, that's very expensive and iconic real estate that's out of reach for most. But with Picasso, there's a lot more people who can afford a you know, $800,000 share or a million dollar share, right? Because that requires $300,000 down. Still a ton of money, 
but a lot more people can afford $300,000 down than $3 million down. And Picasso really opens up that door for a lot of families. Yeah, I, I, and I'm just trying to get to the moment where I, I really get it. You've explained that amazingly. Um, but I just want to just push back on that one, one more time. If I'm cranking at the top end, so I'm more looking at the four, five, six months, because I'm sold on the, I'm going to go to Cornwall for, you know, two times in the year like I do. And actually with Picasso, what I try and do is I immediately try and find, hmm, well, maybe actually then I'll go three or four times a year, which I'd like to. Just as you say, it's like an incredibly expensive thing. And it's, a, you know, it's a bit of a pain because it's not set up as it yeah. would be if you, you know, you had your kind of uh, things left there. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. If I'm more four to six months, and actually, particularly if this is at the top end, then I'm looking at, I've got to put quite a substantial amount of money down into this. And the minute you get into that arena, you're starting to think, well, what if that amount went into traditional real estate where I owned it? And, you know, as we know, somewhere like a London, whether it will be for the next two years, but has gone up a lot. I'd make a lot of money from that. Have you have you found that a struggle to get that end of the person who's consuming into a Picasso? Well, first, I would say that this is traditional real estate. I mean, when you own a Picasso, you own the real estate. You just own the real estate with a group of other people. So I'll give you an example. My my wife and I, you know, own our home together and our home is owned in an LLC and we are both members of the LLC. So just because my wife and I own the home through an LLC doesn't change what we own. We still own the home. So when we go to sell that home, we're going to benefit from all the appreciation yeah. that you know uh, accrued in that home. The same exact thing is true of Picasso. The only difference is you generally have more than two owners. You'll have yeah. up to eight owners. Yeah. On average, I would say we'll see about six owners because yeah. usually two people will buy a quarter and then the rest of the group will buy an eight. So it yeah. is traditional real estate um, in that sense. And, and that's kind of you know how I would think about it. But in terms of the 50% question, it comes down to two things, cost and hassle. Like just to use some simple numbers, let's say that it's a $1 million property. If you were to buy a $1 million property, you would have to put 20 to 30% down. So two to $300,000 down. And um, you would have to pay the full operating cost of that home, which is probably, you know, $5,000 per month, roughly, or pounds per month, roughly. If you were to buy, and you would have to deal with all of the hassle, by the way, you'd have to pay all the bills, you'd have to do all the repairs and maintenance, you'd have to coordinate, you know, cleaning and services, etc. With Picasso, if you buy half of the home, you only have to put $30,000 down on the 500,000. So yeah. it's roughly 150,000 down instead of 200 to 300,000 down. And you're only gonna have to pay half of the operating expenses. So instead of 5,000 a month, you're gonna pay roughly 2,500 a month. Now there are some you know, management fees that Picasso includes in there, but they're marginal in the scheme of the savings that, that you're generating from co-ownership. So that's the big reason why. The second big reason why is the hassle. I mean, even for people who can afford a whole second home and justify the waste, it's a lot of work to own a second home. I mean, it's a lot of work to own a primary home, but a secondary home is particularly difficult because you don't live in the area, right? Yeah. It's you're, you're trying to manage this home from afar. And oftentimes these second homes are, are in challenging, you know, places that have, you know, a labor shortage. It's hard to get supplies and materials there. Oftentimes you have extreme weather. You know, mountain towns, for example, have heavy snow, which is really hard to deal with. Desert or, or beach towns have salt and heat to deal with. So we eliminate all the hassles so that you can just enjoy the home with none of the headaches. And we make it a lot more affordable for you to do that by sharing the cost across more people. And that's true whether you buy an eighth or a half. There's just more savings if you buy an eighth. Austin, um, thank you so much. Um, I absolutely love it. What um, could you tell us to give us some type of context and scale about, you know, since you've founded the business, you've raised a lot of money. If you could talk about that, please. Um, but also so the audience can understand, you know, how many people are in this business now? You mentioned you're in 
multiple different geographical territories. So just a little bit around, you know, some of the kind of venture capital questioning of scale and size and growth of this business to date, please. Yeah, absolutely. So we founded the company in 2020, um, but we didn't officially launch until October of 2020. So we actually just celebrated our our two-year anniversary following the launch of the company. So we're relatively new. That being said, it's grown incredibly fast, much faster than than we could have ever imagined. And I think that was largely a function of, you know, the right idea at the right time with an incredible team of people uh, who executed well. So now to speak to the scale, we're in about 40 destinations across four countries, those countries being uh, the UK, Spain, the US, and Mexico. Uh, we're about 275 uh, people on our team and we're fully distributed. So we have no office and we designed the company that way from the start. So our team is spread across 35 plus states and seven countries. Um, we've done about a billion dollars in cumulative revenue uh, since over the course of the last two years since the company's inception and and growing quite quickly in the in the first half of uh, 2022, we grew by about 300% year over year. We've raised about 230 million of capital, equity capital, across three rounds of financing, our Series A, our Series B, and our Series C. And we have a number of, of really great investors that are part of that mix, uh, such as like Mavron, uh, Graycroft, uh, Crosscut, and then um, also some investors with, with more of a European presence, such as Global Founders Capital that's based in Germany. That's the Samwer Brothers. Yeah. Um, the uh, SoftBank is a big investor in our, in our company. Um, Fifth Wall is a really incredible, you know, real estate centric fund that, that has offices also in London. Um, so we've got a really great group of people. And that's just our equity investor base. We also yeah. have a bunch of debt partners. So we've secured, you know, a, a lot of, of debt that 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 gives us the ability to bring these properties into our our marketplace and provide great financing to our customers. So it's really been a, a great ride, you know, a kind of a rocket ship as the saying goes. Wow. That is unbelievable. Uh some of the firms you're mentioning, uh, you know, I've I've read and listen to and spoke to all the people I possibly can. When we get to your background, very interesting. I think in brief what I know from it and that the Samware brothers have invested in you because it certainly fits their uh, their profile of what they look for. Amazing. So look, I'm just going to ask this contrarian question. I, I, I don't like, I don't want to be a killjoy, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, you know, the last couple of years, you know, up until 2022 was a good time to raise. Um, you know, valuations were huge. There's still a lot of dry powder out there, as you know. Um, but the conditions in the macro economy are just on its head. And so we've seen some of the quickest, most rapidly growing tech stocks um, have their valuations changed, struggle to hire people, so on and so forth. Um, you know, have you been concerned? Have you seen anything change or actually... Has that become an opportunity for Picasso and you? All of the above. There was a lot of a lot of good questions <laughs> baked into that one question. So I'll try to touch on them. Uh, so absolutely a lot has changed in the macro environment. And um, every business uh, that I've spoken with, you know, every founder and company I know, every investor I know, you know, is feeling the impact of the macro environment. I mean, you've got um, interest rates climbing aggressively. There's inflation. There's the war. There's you know all sorts of things going on, and and also you know issues that are are specific to to certain you know regions as well. I mean, there's just kind of a perfect storm of a lot of things happening right now in the macro environment that have cr has created a lot of turbulence and a fair amount of, of uncertainty. And anytime you have uh, that dynamic at play, it's, it's of course going to impact the way that you think about and operate a business. Um, the way that, that we've been thinking about it is really just to position the company um, to, to be in a, in a place of kind of strength um, 
to, to be able to weather the storm, you know, whatever the storm may bring. Now, there will be headwinds. I mean, we've already experienced some headwinds, you know, and I think the, the biggest headwind that I think impacts a lot of businesses is that during turbulent times, when consumers feel less, you know, wealthy and less confident, they, they, they tend to spend less, uh, particularly on discretionary things. Like we're selling something that for most people is discretionary. So, you know, you, you think twice in an environment like this before you, you know, liquidate stocks to, to free up money to buy a second home. So we're definitely feeling some of that. But I would say we're also seeing some like early signs of tailwinds that I think at scale will become pretty interesting for us. You know, one tailwind, as an example, is interest rates rising. While interest rates rising can be a challenging thing on the front end, the reason why that it looks like it might be a tailwind for Picasso is because the alternative to buying a Picasso is buying a whole home. And when interest rates go up, whole homes become a lot less affordable than they did than they were before. So we're seeing more people gravitate from whole homes to Picassos because it's a more responsible and accessible way to own real estate. I don't know if we talked about it yet, but but like the the pound, you know, the difference in the dollar and the pound as an example. Obviously, you know, Brits aren't thrilled, I'm I'm sure, with the the strength of the pound right now. But, you know, there is opportunity in there for someone, you know, like American buyers, for example. We're seeing a lot of American buyers look at real estate in London and thinking, wow, like London's kind of 30% on sale right now. This is like one of the most iconic, you know, and desirable cities in the world. And now as a result of the the currency changes over the course of the last year, you know, I can kind of buy into London at 30% off. So what I've found, you know, having having lived through, you know, a couple of these downturns now with 2008 being the biggest one that I've lived through, um, what I've found is that if you're if you're agile enough, if you're innovative enough, and if the company is sort of positioned with the cash to weather the storm, you can find a lot of opportunity in moments like this. And a lot of tailwinds will emerge on the other side of headwinds. So that's kind of how we're thinking about it and what we're experiencing. That I guess the final part of your question that I haven't answered yet is around valuations. I mean, there's no question that valuations have been, you know, corrected. Um, and the reason I think one of the biggest drivers of that is what's happened in the public markets, you know, the public markets and as it relates to private companies, because the 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 private valuations are ultimately a sort of a uh, a precursor to what investors think the company can be worth at a future date in the public market. So when multiples go from, you know, 30, 40, 50 X on, you know, gross profit uh, to 10 X, you know, it, it has an impact on, on how people think about, and, and 10 X is even generous. You know, there are not a lot of companies in our category are even trading at that, but I would say what, what, where we're at right now is actually kind of, it, it certainly is, has corrected quite a bit and, and maybe overcorrected on some level, but the multiples that we're seeing today are a lot more normal and consistent with what we've seen in the past. What we experienced over the, the course of the last couple of years was not normal. I mean, it was a bit of an outlier. Like we had the perfect storm of like growth oriented activities happening. And for our business, you know, like interest rates were low. With, with COVID, a lot of people were, were, were now rethinking how and where they live and work because more people had flexibility to work remote. So that created some really interesting dynamics in some of these second home markets because there was just a lot more demand and supply. So I don't think the last two years was normal. I think the period that we're going to enter, you know, on the other side of this, this, you know, recession or turbulent time, I think will be more normal and more consistent with what we've seen over the course of the last decade. Well, I'm impressed that you managed to remember all of the questions in my one question and get through them <laughs> so eloquently. Thanks, Austin. It makes a lot of sense. Look, we'd have to do a five-hour podcast for us to talk about property and uh, macro markets and all the things that would be fascinating. So perhaps we can um, do that another time. But uh, let's move through now to the, the round where we're going to find out about your origin story. So if you could really now to change gears, Go back and set the scene for the audience, you know, as far back as you'd be kind to go so that we got an understanding of, um, you know, some of the influences you've had and who you were at a really formative age, please. 
So I think the, the best place to start is really just kind of by talking about my upgrade, upbringing. I grew up in a very modest household. Uh, my dad was a carpenter. So we lived paycheck to paycheck. You know, there, there was no discretionary income. Um, and I kind of grew up around real estate from the very beginning through my dad's carpentry. Like I was on the job with him at age four or five with a hammer in my hand. And I think that's where the, the love for real estate was originally ignited. And then by the time I was uh, maybe eight or 10 years old, I started my first company. I mean, maybe to call it a company is a bit of a stretch, but I started my first kind of project that looked like a company, which was a birdhouse business. And where that idea came about is my dad built a birdhouse for my mother and it really brought her a lot of joy. And he had a lot of scrap wood as a carpenter. So I asked him if he could teach me how to build a birdhouse and give me his scrap wood. And he did. So I kind of started building birdhouses and I recruited some of the neighborhood kids and built a little wooden wagon for the back of my bicycle. And we rode up and down the street and knocked on doors and sold these birdhouses. And that was really the kind of the first moment in time that I recognized that, you know, if you could solve problems and deliver value for people that they would be willing to pay for. And, and also kind of recruit and empower other people to help you in that mission, you could accomplish a lot more than you, than anyone could on their own. You know, like I couldn't have sold all those birdhouses by myself. It took my dad teaching me how to make them and my dad giving me the scrap wood and my little brother and my friends helping to build the, the bicycle and knock on doors. So it was a, it was a team effort and we ultimately were delivering value to people who were buying these birdhouses so that then led to, you know, real estate for real. When I was 18 years old, I got my real estate license and I got my license mainly because I needed to find a way to pay my way through college. So I started selling real estate, sold all through college and, and um, kind of went on to law school actually after undergrad. And that whole journey led to my first real estate tech company, because as I was selling real estate, driving all over town, chasing buyers and sellers to get documents signed on the hood of my car, I discovered another problem, which was inefficiency. I mean, I, I was literally wasting hours and hours of my time and other people's time getting documents signed. And I thought to myself, huh, you know, kind of like that birdhouse moment like, where I was like, huh, maybe I could build a birdhouse and deliver value for other people. So I thought to myself, maybe I could, you know, build a software company and make real estate transactions more efficient. Um, so that's what we did. I uh, recruited a co-founder and we, we built a team and we ended up building this business that became one of the leading software companies, you know, in the U.S. where we had about a million real estate agents using our software, about half of all real estate transactions in the U.S. flowed through it. And then, you know, we, we sold for for nine figures in um, 2015 to one of the largest real estate portals um, in the US called Zillow. So that's a bit about the entrepreneurial journey. It really kind of started with, you know, following my passions and, and just trying to solve problems that I was experiencing firsthand. And then along the way, surrounding myself with great people um, who, who ultimately, you know, helped, helped me to fulfill on a lot of these, these visions unbelievable well congratulations <laughs> um a really amazing entrepreneurial journey just a couple of questions um so if we go back to you you've understood the benefit of all the things you mentioned with building the um the birdhouses <clears throat> and then the next part in the story you jumped to to being 18 so like in that part from i think it's somewhere around 7 to 18 like who are you in education at this point? So you have a you have a father who is a craftsman, um, a carpenter, and he's exposed you to, you know, um, to that world and um, through that to to property. And then you know, in education and in school, who are you in that journey? Who are you with your peer group? You know, what are you getting energy from? What are you maybe perhaps not enjoying? Talk us about that little phase as well, please. Yeah, it's interesting you should ask that because this was actually probably the most formative period of my life that I just sort of brushed over because oftentimes I I forget just how important it was. But when I was 16 or 17 years old, I was I was like kind of a tr 
troubled, struggling teenager. You know, like I was on the verge of failing out of high school, you know, just wasn't uh, a productive member of society. I was kind of hanging out with the wrong people, doing a lot of the wrong things. And, you know, I just sort of had this moment um, in my later teenage years where uh, where I had an epiphany that if if I wanted to to be um, be someone and have a positive impact on society and the people around me, I needed to change my ways. And um, I sort of committed in that moment when I was around 17 years old to just change everything about my approach to life. You know, instead of instead of sort of slacking off in school and not taking it seriously, I would go into school early, do my homework on time every time. You know, instead of kind of hanging around with the wrong people, I started trying to surround myself with people who I admired, you know, as individuals and also professionally. And Austin, those are, those, are, those are really quite um, aware, wise decisions after this epiphany. Just again, because I want to keep yeah. you on this point, because otherwise, like you yeah. say, people can quite easily kind of skip through the narrative, um, which yeah. I think this is very valuable to anybody who might be at that particular point. And that can come at many different stages. What caused that epiphany? I think it was just a combination of like uh, having a negative impact on other people's life. I was just like, I was not a productive uh, kind of member of society. You know what I mean? Like when you're, when you're just, when you're just sort of wasting space and not paying attention in school and flunking out, I wasn't making my parents proud. I mean, to use a, a benchmark, um, I, I wanted to be someone that people looked up to that had a positive impact in people's lives. And I think I always wanted that. I mean, maybe, maybe this is the thing that enabled me to connect the dots. You know, I always wanted that dating back to like my early childhood, like that, that birdhouse story that I told you, like I started making birdhouses because I saw how much joy that birdhouse my dad made for my mother brought to her. And I thought to myself, Whoa, if I could, like do the same thing and bring joy to other people and get paid for it, that would enable me to just like deliver more value, you know, to the people around me. And that felt good. You know, yeah. when you're delivering value for people, it really feels good. Like my first company, as an example, it, we, we basically got to a point where um, four or five years in, we had so many customers and so many real estate transactions happening on our software that, I would be traveling, you know, for a, a real estate conference, or I would even just be traveling for personal reasons. And I would run into real estate agents or people who had bought homes previously. And they would tell me all these stories about how the, the company really changed their lives. You know, I was like crazy stories. Like, you know, I, I, my mother was ill and we were in the hospital trying to sell our home. And, you know, your software enabled me to sign the documents while sitting bedside to my mother. You know, as opposed to the old way, I would have had to drive into the real estate office to get this deal done. And you start to hear those types of stories. And it's like, wow, that feels pretty good. Like yeah. me and my team had that impact. So I guess I, I was having, you know, the opposite impact on people in my teenage years, basically from yeah. age like 12 to 17. And you, by the time you get to the end of high school, you start have you're sort of forced to think a little more seriously about what you're going to do with your life. You know, like, am I going to get into college? Like yep. if I was going to get into college, I had to change something about my, my patterns in order to get my grades up enough to graduate from high school, you yeah. know, cause I was on the verge of failing out, you know, most of my classes. So I just changed everything. And I mean, literally when I was, when I, when I started in college, I, I basically wore a suit and tie every day. I, I did a dual degree program. So I, I went to school for two years for, or five years for both degrees. And I showed up at 7 a.m., 7 to 7.30 a.m. every morning. So I was the first student there. I was the last student to leave. And I basically just paid attention. You know, I respected the professors. I did my homework. I studied. And, you know, in college, a lot of people, you know, don't take it so seriously. You know, they're, they're there to party or hang out and have fun. You know, and I was the guy sitting at the front of the room, taking it seriously, selling real estate on the side. And I went from being like basically on the verge of a high school dropout to being the number one you know, graduate in my college. And I became the student marshal and got an academic scholarship to law school. 
And, you know, that just opened up all these other doors, which obviously led to my first company, which led to my second company, et cetera. But it all started just by like changing my perspective and my outlook on life. And I, I decided I wanted to be a person that would have a positive impact and leave the world a little bit you know, better off uh, than how I found it. Well, congratulations. We have, um, as part of the Mana Group, Mana Search, which is a search business. So we have to, you know, we've got the responsibility of looking at uh, a bunch of individuals who, you know, mostly are keen for a particularly great opportunity that we might have, and then trying to critique who we think, you know, shortlist is and who we ultimately think, you know, there's a connection with the mana and the vision and the purpose of the business. And, you know, you have to look at just so many different things, but let's say there's one thing that I believe some people in the industry do, which is they'll kind of see a cross on the CV or in the experience, and then that's it, discard that individual. So what we believe is from this relatively interesting um, psychology um, determination, which is if you can make a bad impression with somebody psychologically, and then you can turn them around, they will like you more than if they just liked you to start mm. with. It's really mm. interesting human psychology. And I think that that's no truer than actually internalizing with yourself. So if you can find somebody, wherever it is, where there's a moment where they've been down in the dumps, you know, things aren't going how perhaps they aspired for them to, but they can have the realization that they want to be better. Then the, the discipline, the affirmation from that moment, and then the trajectory of that individual is actually something that we look for because we think that type of contrarian who's had that epiphany moment uh, disciplines and aspires in the most uh, optimum way. And again, you've been a, a classic example of where, you know, I don't even need to cut into too much that very successful software business that you created at such an early stage. It probably is that same discipline that you had suddenly in education, where you made sure you're first in, last out, applying yourself. You, you know, you're even hustling on the side to, to, to pay the bills to get through it. You've taken things to a level of like, you know, I expect these these huge things of myself because the outcome is, you know, I can provide wonderful value from being the best I can be. And so, you know, um, Austin, like congratulations for you. It's a, it's a really inspiring story. I absolutely love it. Let's jump to the mana round. So to set the scene, you're on searching for mana and uh, mana is in gaming magic. So you have power, uh, which is your life. You know, think of that as the CV. Um, and then you have your magic. This could be, you can run really quickly, jump really high. You've got great sword skills, whatever it might be. Um, so we're gonna ask a few questions and we're gonna try and find out what your mana is, what your magic is, what your superpower is. If you could have the front cover of Forbes or whatever your most dear, precious publication might be, what would you put on the front cover? I would say the message of the cover would be like, you know, he earned it. Like ev everything that, like, I, I don't believe that there's an overnight success. I don't believe that anyone succeeds alone. You know, I think that most of the people who have made a kind of a big impact on the world like they earned it. They worked their tails off. They sacrificed a lot. You know, they they surrounded themselves with a great team. Like as an example for me, you know, the only reason I went to law school was to basically become a better version of myself. I had no intention of practicing law. I went to law school as academic boot camp. And law school, by the way, is like not an easy thing. It's very, particularly the first year is very, very difficult, especially when you're like working and selling real estate on top of it. So I kind of put myself through that just as a, like a, a tactic to make myself better and position myself um, to, uh, you know, it, overcome more challenge and hardship in the future. So I would say that would be the main thing is like just doing whatever is necessary 
to like get the job done, that's probably the main, yeah, I think that would be the cover that I'd prefer. Love it. Do you have any particular ritual to set you up for the day? Yeah. Yeah. I have several of them, but just to highlight a few of them, I mean, you know, one is I, uh, and this is a pretty common one. I think I read it in a book somewhere and, and started using it, but um, I start every morning. This is before I even get up out of bed. I literally just open my eyes, roll over. Um, and I think about um, the three things I'm most grateful for. Um, and then I, I think about the three goals that I have, you know, and, and I, I frame the goals around like long-term goal, midterm goal, and the goal of today. Like, what am I going to accomplish today? And then same thing with the gratitude. I tend to, to think about like, um, it, it tends to be around health, you know, family, and then sort of like freedom to do what I love. I mean, those tend to be the things that I'm, I'm most grateful for, but I repeat them every single morning. Um, and that's probably the, the most like powerful ritual that I have that I would recommend to others. Yeah. Gratitude's just amazing. And I love how you're setting out those different types of goals. Is there anything um, look like somebody who's in incredible shape, which, you know, when you've got the pressures and the opportunities of running such a successful fast paced business is, is something you really need to build in habit wise. Have you got a particular, yeah. you know, physical habit that you've kind of disciplined into the morning or the day? Yep, absolutely. It's um, the exercise. Um, and generally my form of exercise historically has been running, but unfortunately now I'm 37. So my knees aren't as strong as they were when I was in my twenties. So <laughs> I'm running less now because I, you know, my knees are always hurting me, but now what I'm doing in lieu of running is cycling. So I mountain bike. I've always loved mountain biking. Um, and now I have where, where I live, I have access to mountain bike trails. So now I try to mountain bike almost every day. I would say it ends up being five days a week usually, but I'm either running or mountain biking every single day. And occasionally if I don't have time, um, and by not have time, I mean, I always block this in my schedule. Obviously, my schedule is pretty full given my job, but I always block time for exercise in my schedule. Like if you look at it every single day, you'll see an exercise block. But occasionally, it's just I can't make it work. And in those scenarios, what I'll do is I'll take calls while going for a walk. So I at least still get my steps in that day, even if it's not, you know, an intense what's, cardio exercise. What's a good step day for you? How many steps? Uh, I actually don't count the steps, but I would say maybe I do on my aura ring, but I would say the miles that I typically go are like, you know, six to to eight or so on average. Cause I usually run four or five and then I'm, I'm walking a couple miles. Yeah. Yeah. Quite so combined. That's, that's awesome. Um, there's this, uh, application on the blockchain called Sweatcoin, and we had Oleg, the founder onto the show, uh, and the, the, the product has huge traction uh, and it's really interesting because you can kind of see like what's a good amount of steps and so on and so forth i think he says like over twelve thousand is if it's just steps good but if you're doing the running and then the steps that's fantastic what keeps you up at night i would say what keeps me up at night is just kind of the executional details around the business like startups are super hard I mean, they may seem easy from the outside, like when you read the headlines and see all the growth, it's easy to assume that, you know, they're not hard, but they're super hard. Let me tell you, I, I mean, <laughs> even for the even for the startups that find lightning in a bottle, you know, like we were lucky enough to early on where you just have kind of crazy escape velocity hyper growth, like it's still incredibly hard. And, you know, for us, like, operationalizing um lots of homes across lots of markets um whereby the the lots of different owners are are enjoying these homes like that's a pretty hard thing to scale operationally so i definitely think a lot about that and you know our goal in that context is always around providing the best possible customer experience because if if your customers are always happy you know everything else kind of just takes care of itself um, but delivering customer happiness at scale is not an easy thing to do. And then the other thing that doesn't keep me up at night, but is something that 
I really think about all the time, you know, included at night is people and culture. Um, businesses and particularly, you know, success in business is all about having great people and great company culture that empowers people to do their best work. And that also does not happen by accident. Like it, it's a lot of hard work, you know, having the right people working on the right things, empowering them to do their best work um, and then scaling that, you know? So I, I spend a lot of time thinking about that as well. Cause that's like the foundation of it all without great people, you kind of have nothing. Austin, what would you say is, um, and by the way, um, you know, read a lot on this myself and study it with our, our clients and my own organization. And, um, you know, culture has been perceived historically as this kind of soft thing. And actually, you'll know this. And I think um, a lot of um, the greatest leaders will know this. You need to have an incredibly strong culture, actually. Mm -hmm. What would you say um, Picasso's, you know, either kookiest or strongest element of its culture is? Mm. The strongest element, I'm not sure about the kooky part, but the strongest element is our, what we call our infinite mindset. So we, the first of our five core values is to embrace an infinite mindset, which basically means thinking on a time horizon, thinking and planning on a time horizon that's infinite. You know, bad companies think short-term, good companies think long-term, the greatest companies of all are, are thinking like very, very long-term. Like for, for us, we're thinking about building a business that lasts generations and endures the test of time. Like I want to spend the rest of my life working on Picasso and I want to create something with our team that literally lives on and becomes, you know, greater than like much bigger and greater and, and, um, and whereby the kind of the mission gets carried forward long after after we're here, you know, working at the company. So that attribute is very pronounced in in the company culture. Um, and I think it's a really important one. And it's, it's a really hard one, by the way, to like stay true to, because sometimes you have a lot of really intense short term pressures. Like right now, you know, all companies have a lot of really intense short term pressure. Um, and you got to respond to those short-term pressures as well, but you got to do it in the context of like the long-term or infinite goal. Yep. And I think we do a pretty good job of that internally. Fantastic. Is there a book that you'd like to recommend to the audience that's really dear to you? You come back to a lot, you gift, you read recently and you like. Yeah, there's lots of them. Um, the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek, which is where the infinite mindset kind of came from. That's what we were inspired by is kind of the generic one that I would say. But during this time, I would say the most relevant book that I could think of is uh, The Hard Things About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Yeah, because this is one of these moments in the macro environment where there's just a lot of, you know, challenge and headwind. Um, and that's kind of part of the deal that's part yeah. of the deal if you're if you're running a business or building a business like this comes with the territory and he does a great job of capturing that in that yeah. book we'll put those in the show notes and his most recent book which is more on culture is a super read as well we'll put that in the show notes as well um okay fantastic so um what would you say uh your your mana is well it depends who you ask. My my board and investors would would probably say uh, it's my ability to build people and culture. Like if you look at my first company, Dot Loop, we were kind of known for the the culture and people. Um, and obviously, all companies have, or a lot, of, all great companies have great people. So by no means am I saying that like our people, our company is the only one that has great people, like lots of companies have that. But I think what, where we're unique is the culture that we've built. I mean, our culture is just, you know, incredible. And um, at Picasso, the culture is fully distributed, which is, is also, you know, pretty novel and, and becoming more and more common. But it, there are certain things in a distributed environment that are harder to do it, as it relates to building culture. Um, but I think we've done a really kind of incredible job doing that. But how I would answer that, so that's how my like board would answer it. 
I would say my my superpower is is just around like the what what I was talking about before around the kind of grit and determination. And this is really formed through hardship that you experience in your life. Like the, those those lows that you experience in your life kind of force you to develop grit and tenacity uh, that enables you to persevere through any situation. And you know, there's there's really nothing that I'm afraid of. Or, well, I, I'm afraid of a lot of things, but I don't let fear slow me down. You know, I try to do something every day that makes me a little uncomfortable and a little scared. And um, I'm just relentless, you know, in pursuit of what on, I believe in. On the mana cards, which which we'll we'll put together for our incredible guests we've had on, uh, you know, we've got their grid and determination, and then we've got building fantastic um, people and culture. Grid and determination doesn't necessarily strike me as connecting necessarily to the other one. So I'm interested. You know, you in a couple of instances now are super proud of building this brilliant um, culture in these organizations and your uh, your investors believe that you're, you're phenomenal at doing this. What's the personality trait there that makes that happen? I think there's a few of them, but servant leadership is the first thing that comes to mind for me. It used to be that people thought that employees worked for leaders I think that thinking is wrong and, and archaic. I think that leaders work for their teams. You know, I approach every situation as though, um, you know, I work for my team and kind of the most important question that I ask in one-on-ones with my direct reports is what can I do to help you do your job better? Or is there any roadblock that you're facing that I can help you with? Like that's the most important role that I play as a leader. I would say another very important trait is kind of transparency and vulnerability. You know, I am as vulnerable with, I, I, I basically, I, I exhibit, you know, kind of almost maximum vulnerability with my team. And that's rare, you know, for leaders. I think leaders, uh, oftentimes leaders feel pressure to sort of live up to this, this uh, persona you know, that leaders have. Like, if you look at some of the best leaders, it's easy to assume that those leaders are like superheroes that have no flaws, right? That, that feel no fear or pain or anxiety. But the reality is leaders are humans, just like everybody else. You know, we have flaws too. We wake up scared. We wake up worried. Um, sometimes we don't know the answers to, to questions or problems we're trying to solve. Um, and if you can expose that to your team and, and let people see the real you, what ends up happening is they realize that you're not a superhero. So you become more relatable, first and foremost. Number two, it's easier to, to trust someone. Like when when you sh share your kind of um, your, your moments of weakness, you know, like as an example, when I left my last company, the, the final day after I left um, Zillow, I stayed on for four years. You know, I spoke on stage with, I don't know, three or 400 people on our team and I was bawling. You know, I was so emotional about kind of leaving this company that I had dedicated, you know, 10 years of my life to that I was just like hysterically crying on stage in front of 400 people. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. I couldn't hold it back. But you know what? Like after that, I mean, people just came up and they hugged me. And, you know, many of them will never forget that moment. Right. Because they saw the real me. So I think if you can be vulnerable like that as a leader, it just really enables you to connect with your team on a level that's highly, highly productive, you yeah. know, as it relates to building culture. And that's why, that's why I think my board and investors would answer the question at, at, with that being my superpower. But for me, it kind of comes naturally, I guess. Like, I don't think of it as a superpower. I just think of it as like, you know, this is how you work with a team. You, like you be vulnerable, um, you serve your people. Like these things seem fairly basic to me, um, which is why I don't, think they're a superpower but maybe that is why they're a superpower to me because they come naturally i'm not sure well i think you know having you know um there's only so much time for this particular show but having already you know got to listen to your journey and and hear you talk to particular topics you're clearly incredibly thoughtful and then with that you know huge empathetic nature as well like you say of course 
um, you know, it puts you and the team all on the same side and that vulnerability certainly didn't um, make people dislike Roger Federer, who we just recently saw <laughs> retire and him and Nadal on the court balling as this, you know, phenomenal goat yeah. era of tennis comes to an end. I mean, quite the reverse. So uh, I completely 100% agree with that. Amazing. So um, just moving on to the final part where we do some future projections. You've already given, I would say, the audience what is some type of Hollywood version um, of Picasso, and uh, you know, because that strong culture that you guys have is to not think about the short or the medium term, but have an infinite mindset when you're thinking through this business and for it to be generationally valuable. Um, we can talk about um, that as the final bit, if you want to put any layer on top of that, and we don't have particularly long left. Um, but it'd be interesting just to get your view on um, on the macro environment right now and anything that, um, Austin, you'd like to talk about to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think you know, the main thing that I'd, I'd like to kind of finish with is just talking about the the future of housing as it relates to um kind of the role of second homes and uh like we've we've just gone through a period with the pandemic that permanently shifted the way that many people think about you know housing as it relates to how they live and how they work and and the big change has been around flexibility more people have flexibility now to work remote part-time or full-time. And that has empowered more people to kind of rethink where they live. So I think as we look into the future, I think you're gonna see um, kind of new categories of housing emerge and we're pioneering one of them around co-ownership. Um, and the reason why I'm so confident that co-ownership is, is gonna become like, you know, potentially the way to own a second home for most people is because number one, it's more accessible. I mean, house home prices have gotten to a level that make it impossible for most people to afford. But that doesn't change the fact that, you know, 75% to 80% of people kind of above a certain income threshold aspire to own a second home. Like this is a widespread aspiration that people have, but it's out of reach due to, you know, home prices and waste. So like there has to be a better way from that perspective. We're also living in a world where we have to think about sustainability and the environment. And it's incredibly wasteful to have homes sitting empty, you know, consuming energy um, uh, and, and polluting the environment. Like we, we have to explore more sustainable solutions across all in industries, not just housing and co-ownership is that for second homes. And I think the, the final piece relates to kind of the housing um, industry and home prices in particular, like the, there are a lot of empty second homes sitting around the world. Like in London alone, it's estimated that there's $40 billion worth of real estate that's sitting vacant at any given point in time. All that empty real estate is further constraining supply. And we already, in pretty much all markets, but, but definitely in London as well, we have um, low inventory levels. And when you have low inventory levels, it causes you know, home prices to stay high or, or to go higher. All that empty housing stock is further constraining supply. If you can free up that housing stock and empower people to buy it and occupy it, it'll create more opportunity and more supply to kind of normalize the market and, and um, relieve some of the pressure on home price appreciation. So for those three reasons, I think that co-ownership is, you know, here to stay. And I think it's, it's really going to kind of change housing you know, for the better and empower a lot more people to realize their dreams while also making better use of, of existing supply. Um, in terms of the macro environment, I mean, it's tough out there, but in these moments, what I find is that it's important to just zoom out to 50,000 feet and, you know, not look in terms of months or quarters, but kind of look back at the past and the future, you know, over, over periods of years. You know, like if you look back over a period of, the last 30 years, for example, what you'll see is lots of highs and lots of lows. And, you know, it, it, when you're in the moment of one of these lows, it feels tough. But if, if you're able to sort of zoom out and position yourself or your company 
to really look for the opportunities in these moments of low, um, you will emerge stronger on the other side of it. Like at Picasso, while it's super tough, you know, to be in this environment long term, I'm very excited, you know, about about what it means for our company. I think we'll emerge stronger with a, a lot of new opportunity that kind of wouldn't have surfaced had it not been for uh, for for this macro environment. So I would encourage everyone to just kind of, you know, zoom out, put it in perspective, try to try to stay present. You know, don't don't get too caught up in the negative headlines. It, you know, this will pass, um, but it's probably going to be a little while. You know, it's it's it, this little dip is not just going to be a quarter or two. I don't think. I think it's going to be you know a year or two. Um, but we'll get through it and we'll emerge stronger on the other side. Well, I'm highly confident of that. Austin, um, you know, he earned it on the front cover. And, uh, you know, I know you'll carry on um, doing what you're doing. So, look, congratulations again to this point. It's really exciting. I love what you're doing. Um, we'll put some notes Thank you. around um, how people can look into Picasso. And I'll be one of the people doing that immediately. It's unbelievable. As this moves forward, guys, um, Picasso very much, you know, believes that, um, you know, second home should be something that everybody can really access. Um, and as Austin said, and I'm sure we can all relate to, you know, particularly with hybrid work and the way the world is is changing. You know, if you're in cities, so valuable to have somewhere that you go to or get away to. But it's incredibly unaffordable as the world is right now. So, um, you know, kind of amen to Picasso, to you, Austin, for doing this. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Lloyd. It was my pleasure.